It's Friday, June 9th, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. The Waltine Nata indictment has been released and things do not look good for this Guamese former naval officer who texted extensively about the issues of Palm Beach document storage. Also caught up in Waltgate, Donald J. Trump. The former president, intent on making history, kept classified documents, lied about keeping classified documents, and floated this question to lawyers. Wouldn't it be better if we just told them we don't have anything here? Yes, but only if you really didn't have anything there. And also if you hadn't been using your lawyer to obstruct justice, which torpedoes attorney-client privilege. Those attorneys, by the way, have left the case. But the 15 cases of documents moved from room to room at Mar-a-Lago, according to the indictment. All of this is according to the indictment. In fact, there were certain pages of those documents, including a war plan against Iran drawn up by General Milley that made its way to Bedminster, New Jersey, where Trump produced it to visitors, including a writer who was working on a book. Now, the intent was to wow him. Did it work? Let me read from the transcript. Trump, well with... And then Millie's name is redacted, but it's Millie. Uh, Let me see that. I'll show you an example. He said that I wanted to attack country A. It's Iran. Isn't it amazing? I have a big pile of papers. This thing just came up. Look, this was him. They presented me this. This is off the record, but they presented me this. This was him. This was the Defense Department and him. Writer, wow. It worked. It wowed him. And it represents one of seven federal counts against him. Special Prosecutor Jack Smith talked briefly to the public today and explained why what Trump did was serious. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. Violations of those laws put our country at risk. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle of the Department of Justice. And our nation's commitment to the rule of law sets an example for the world. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. Applying those laws, collecting facts, that's what determines the outcome of an investigation. Nothing more and nothing less. The prosecutors in my office are among the most talented and experienced in the Department of Justice. They have investigated this case hewing to the highest ethical standards, and they will continue to do so as this case proceeds. It's very important for me to note that the defendants in this case must be presumed innocent until proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. To that end, my office will seek a speedy trial in this matter, consistent with the public interest and the rights of the accused. We very much look forward to presenting our case to a jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. In conclusion, I would like to thank the dedicated public servants of the Federal Bureau of Investigation with whom my office is conducting this investigation and who work tirelessly every day upholding the rule of law in our country. I'm deeply proud to stand shoulder to shoulder with them. Thank you very much. Smith then unwittingly voiced the number one defense being presented right now on Truth Social among MAGA Nation and by Trump himself. 
We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. Exactly, the Trumpistas said, and Mike Pence and Joe Biden took documents too. Hey, they gave him back, yeah, when asked, but, and they didn't lie about it, sure, but they took documents too. They did it too. That's the defense to which the judges, I'm sure, are going to say, wait, are you saying they did it too? Well, as you know, under federal law, if more than one person breaks a law, then all parties are allowed to break the law. Let me now, hold on one second. I have to contact the criminal courts and the jails. Sir, do you have murderers locked up there? You do. Well, let me ask you this. Do you have more than one murderer? Ah, well, the first one could go because if the other guy did it too, then he's off the hook. In fact, the second guy could go if a third person did it. What? There were 20,000 murders last year. They can all go. If it was only one, we'd have to punish him. But since there were more than one, they did it too. Under the doctrine of they did it too, they're all free to go. I'll stop now. This is getting ridiculous. But you know what? Who knows? Maybe the judge will say this. The judge is Trump appointee Eileen Cannon, who previously ruled in favor of Trump and was almost immediately harshly rebuked by higher-ups on the 11th Circuit. It's unclear, by the way, if Cannon will stay on for the duration of the case, but she will be presiding when Trump appears in her Florida courthouse. That is scheduled for Tuesday, which judging by Trump's appearance in New York State Courthouse two months ago, will cause workers to weep and apologize for having to fingerprint him. Because that is how deeply Americans feel for Waltin Nauta and his co-conspirator, a guy named Trump. On the show today, it is another full show Friday. Ooh, I just coined a phrase. I invented a format. Well, I have a really good full show. The Geography of Bliss is a 2009 nonfiction book in which Eric Weiner went to the happiest and sometimes the least happy countries in the world to figure out happiness, what makes people happy. The television version of The Geography of Bliss is out now on Peacock, and Rain Wilson is our grumpy guide, or in his case, more specifically, our anxious American serving up this travelogue. My conversation with Rain and Eric is good. It gets heated at times. We're going to play the whole thing. I also write about it in today's Pesca Profundities Substack. Lots of charts and deep dives and specific statistics there, as befits the Substack format. But this here is an audio blissful knockdown drag out with me, Eric Weiner, and Rain Wilson. Enjoy. understand happiness, I'll need to embrace what comes my way. Why do this? Because you can. In Los Angeles, we barely know the people that we live near. Here, everybody's family. If we want to do this old school Icelandic way, we really should drop our trunks. The Geography of Bliss is a new show on the Peacock Network. It's part travelogue, part psychotherapy, and part sociological research. It's based on the book of the same name written by Eric Weiner, 
who I work with for many years at NPR. And Rain Wilson is the host, and more than the host, it really is filtered through his sensibility, if you know about many of the things that the star of The Office and many other TV shows and movies has been into with his uh, production company, Soul Pancake. That's what they're talking about. They're going to different places, or Rain is, and figuring out what makes people happy, what are the keys to happiness. Sort of a lifelong quest that both of these guys are compelled to undertake and they join me now rain and eric welcome back to the gist and rain welcome to the gist good to be here uh thanks for having us so before we even start how much i know that books get optioned and then they get pitched to you know uh different people who could turn them into tv shows let's say how much interaction have you guys had in creating this project well i'll, I'll jump in um fairly little i'd like to have more uh, we haven't even like really gotten to sit down and have a meal together, but these two young uh, producers just wrote me out of the blue and they're like, hey, we got the rights to this book. I'm so sorry, Eric. I hadn't heard of the book before. And that's okay. They said, I, can- I hadn't heard of The Office before, so we're even. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Uh, so, and I was like, wow, this is really compelling. And then I read the book and I was just utterly charmed I thought the voice was so strong. The writing was great. The concept was amazing. And I actually was like learning things as I was being greatly entertained. And I was like, you're right. This is a great TV show. And um, and then not long after that, had a conversation, I think a Zoom or a call or something with Eric. But fr- from my end, it's been pretty minimal. But obviously, the book and the vision are all Eric's the the central concept and idea of a flawed narrator right searching for happiness on both sociologically and psychologically and humorously logically um <laughs> was what all came from from Eric and uh yeah well if i if i can jump in rain uh, we did have a phone call and if you recall just before you hit the road i sent you like a two or three page memo about uh, by email about how to get people to talk about happiness. But you did because... have return receipt on, and you have no knowledge that you ever read the memo, right? <laughs> <laughs> no, he said this is really helpful. I do recall that. Um, but the truth is, it's actually kind of harder than you might think to um, explore happiness and to get people to talk about it. I mean, Mike, you know that if you put a microphone in front of someone and ask them to hold forth about the misery in their life, they just they just keep going and going. But if you ask people if they're happy and they say yes, and you ask why, you get an answer like, I just am, you know, which doesn't make for great radio or television. So you have to kind of tease it out of people because I think people don't normally sit around thinking, if they are happy, thinking about why they're happy because they're too busy being happy. Right. And then there's the idea that the unexamined life is not worth living. And Eric, you touch on this in the Socrates Express, but maybe one reason why people don't engage in an understanding or an examination of happiness is the idea that ignorance is bliss. And if you think about it too much, you might become unhappy. I actually think it's the, that's reverses cause and effect. We might be talking about cause and effect a lot here, that the people who dwell on it, that the uh, people for whom the search for happiness is constant in their brain, it's not that they have a flaw or it's not that they mistakenly began thinking about it. It's the absence of this thing that they perceive other people 
uh, to have that drives them to think about nothing other than that. But did you find any of that in your writing, Eric? Yeah. I mean, to um, paraphrase Socrates, the overexamined life is not worth living either. Um, so there, there's a balance. Um, and I think the conclusion I reached that I think Rain reaches as well is that happiness is, it's a byproduct of a life lived well. Um, you can't try to be happy and then be happy. You can do things that we know lead to happiness, like, you know, have good social connections, exercise, um, have purpose and meaning in your life. And then one day you realize you're happy, but you don't want to think about that too long because as soon as you become aware of your happiness, it, it kind of, it slips away. You know, it's this state where if you shine a light on it, it just scurries away. So it, it, the trick is to do things that lead to this side effect called happiness um, without actively, consciously pursuing them, if that makes sense. That, uh, by the way, I've been in this happiness business for a long time because <laughs> long before the show, um, we were examining this through positive psychology experiments on my media company, Soul Pancake, and I had read a, a num the happiness hy hypothesis you know, by Jonathan Haidt came out 12 years ago. I've been looking into this. That was, Eric, you just summarized it better than anyone in, you know, 90 seconds better than anything I've ever heard uh, in the in the previous 10 years. So uh, that's the NPR background speaking. <laughs> so that, but that was limited so, time. That was so beautifully succinct, you know, yeah. um, and that's why this idea of in in the american dna life liberty and the pursuit of happiness i i think has gotten us really fucked up because how do you pursue happiness you can't pursue happiness mm. like you know if you're if you're sitting on a bench in central park licking an ice cream cone and a butterfly lands on your shoulder and you feel happy then okay i want to pursue that happiness so i'm going to buy a, a, two ice cream cones the next day and put, you know, butterfly, uh, you know, food on my shoulder and, and, and it doesn't come back and I'm not happy. And then I buy the ice cream cart and I'm frantically trying to recapture something. It has nothing to do with the ice cream and the butterfly. It's a, it's a residual effect of a certain state of mind. You might be in the same situation the next day and, and not feel happiness at all. So, um, life, liberty, and the pursuit of, you know, a life well lived, or, you know, I talk about, uh, sometimes about the Greek idea of eudaimonia, of, you know, human flourishing, life, liberty, and the pursuit of human flourishing, then residually, you might feel happiness a little bit more out of that. Uh, I think it's really, it's a really important conversation for us to be having. Yeah, and I think one thing Rain and I agree on, because I've heard you say it, and I've said it, is we don't love the word happiness. Um, it's not It's not a great well, word. Well, your book um, wasn't. The happiness wasn't in the title of your book. No, it, it wasn't. And <laughs> Right, and, and by the end of the book, spoiler alert, I conclude that, as Rain said, this Greek idea of eudaimonia, which is often translated as happiness, but really, as he says, means flourishing, a, a full life, a complete life. And, you know, like... Aristotle thought that happiness and virtue were linked, that you could not be a happy bank robber or a happy embezzler. Like, but today we would say, well, you could be a bank robber, which, you know, objectively is bad for society, but you could feel happy and that's okay. And the ancient Greeks thought, no, that's that's not the case. 
Yeah, I also think there's uh, something about contentedness. So maybe contentedness doesn't reach the levels of flourishing, but I don't know. You could either look at it like if you are content, you'd be the kind of person disinclined to say something interesting for to a documentarian or NPR reporter about happiness. On the other hand, that's a state, I, and I understand why Jefferson wouldn't put it in the Declaration of Independence. There's nothing aspirational about it. You don't rebel against a king in order to achieve contentment. But perhaps that's the state we should be going for. So I would say um, that if we're looking, if we're parsing words, mm-hmm. um, I would say that joy is the most powerful of all of those words. Because again, contentment is residual in a lot of life choices, you know. So for instance, if you practice meditation, and you have Buddhist practices of detachment or non-attachment, you might feel contentment more, um, but it's a residual effect of other practices. Joy is something that you can decide to do. Like I can, I can decide to kind of bring joy into my life. I can also decide if I'm not feeling joy personally in my chest to give joy to other people. And it's one of the most powerful tools for healing that we have so i can feel like crap and mike i can know that you're down in the gills and i can be like i'm gonna call my friend mike and i'm gonna bring him a rhubarb pie and mike is like wow i feel loved i feel seen thank you so much and then and then by the way residually you get more happiness uh, uh as as a reaction to your kind of act of joyful service and it increases joy. So that's another way of looking at this uh, rubric. Yeah. So you said something, as long as we're talking about words, I would say a large part of this project, both these projects, the book form, the documentary, is to come up with some words or some conceptions that maybe will spark in the viewer Uh, an insight. Maybe it will inspire them to change, but mostly it will just reframe in an intellectually stimulating way. And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, if we could do that, I'd buy that book. I'd watch the documentary. I did, although it was probably given it gratis in both cases, but not that I'm not a Peacock subscriber. But I think the project is to get a little even deeper than, well, here are some concepts. Think about these concepts. Are you uh, interested or excited about these concepts? Great. I've done my job. You do want to get a little deeper. And I also think that you did it in different ways. So Eric, how do you approach uh, that idea of we're not just doing a survey of ideas of happiness put against the geography of the world. We're trying to get something deeper here. So um, first, a quick plug for my favorite travel quote ever from the writer Henry Miller, who said, one's destination is never a place, but a new way of looking at things. And that's the point of my journey, and I think Rain's as well, was not to gain knowledge per se, that to become an expert on happiness, but to see this important concept of a happy, meaningful life from different perspectives. So even though I was traveling to a lot of the happiest places, I also traveled to some unhappy ones like Moldova and and Rain went to Yes, I was going to say Bulgaria played Moldova in the TV version, yeah. 
It, it did. It did. Moldova was a little too close to Putin and Russia for <clears throat> for the executives. Also, of by the to way, too, as as uh, Rain was talking about joy and pain, you have to have the sweet and the sour, and that's what the Moldova slash Bulgaria presence right. demonstrated. But I was looking up the statistics. Bulgaria is less happy than Moldova, so in in many ways, Bulgaria was maybe a better choice if you want to find the unhappy er country. Yeah. And I think the point of going to an unhappy place is not only the control group, you know, to compare, but, and I I became quite fond of the Moldovans in a bizarre way. And I think it came across that, that rain sort of liked the Bulgarians, you know, maybe because we're both a little grumpy and we're attracted to these unhappy people. Um, But to get back to your question, Mike, I, so I approached this as sort of a a Petri dish, like a a look at the world as a laboratory of ideas, um, a what if experiment. So what if, you know, money buys you happiness? We, we, we hear it does, we think it might. So you would want to go to the wealthiest country in the world. I went to Qatar to look at the relationship between money and happiness. Um, you know, maybe it's social connections. So you go to places with deep social connections and, it wasn't necessarily them saying, oh, you know, this is the happy place and we should all move here. It's more like, let's see how these different cultures define happiness and not just define it, but, you know, act on it. And, and I want to say pursue, but I don't want to use that word that manifest it, I suppose. So it's fascinating that Bulgaria has been so oppressed for centuries. I mean, we're going back like to the year 900, you know, the Ottoman Turks, the the Russians, everyone has uh, invaded their country. Then it was the Germans in World War II. Then it was the, famously the Soviets, and they were behind the Iron Curtain. So the Bulgarian expression or manifestation, as Eric says, of happiness is behind closed doors. You know, it's it's in fa- with family, in picnics, it's inside. You couldn't trust your neighbors. There was one point in time, a third of the people in Bulgaria were spying for the government. So there can't be a social expression of happiness or joy. It had to be much more private on a a smaller scale. But like weeds popping up in the cracks of the sidewalk, that's that's how the Bulgarians express it. And I just want to mention, Eric talked about going to Qatar, and um, we were going to go shoot in Dubai, and we were literally arriving in Dubai, Mike, to shoot our episode on Can Money Buy You Happiness? And the reality show Real Housewives of Dubai aired um, (laughs) that at that exact same time and the royal family watched Real Housewives of Dubai and they were so incensed, outraged, and flabbergasted, they shut down all foreign production. So here we are in Dubai, we've got our cameras, we've got our crew, our vans, our, our, our locations are rented, and the uh, the 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 sultan or sheikh or whomever he was was like, that's it, get out of here, you crazy kids. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that, Rain. Like, what, don't they know Real Housewives of wherever? Like, what it's all about? I, Maybe I, they took the title too literally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I I think they thought, well, they'll these will be these will be different. These will be Muslim housewives, so they won't swear, <laughs> they won't drink, they won't get plastic surgery and throw stuff at each other. But nope. Not, not so. <laughs> yeah, they had to go through a uh, hajib to get to the hair pulling, but they did. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, we got to Dubai, but then the Real Housewives had been there to answer the question, can money buy you happiness? And they did such a good job, we said, what's the point? It was the definitive answer. Um, so what, what, uh, so we should say, 
that the cities or countries that you visited were Iceland, Bulgaria, Thailand, Ghana, and LA. What replaced uh, Dubai? Well, we, I was, we were also supposed to go to Japan, and I got COVID as literally as my, uh, my limo, my town car was pulling up to take me to the airport. I tested positive for COVID, and it just threw a giant monkey wrench in everything. I was really excited to go to Japan because there's so many different ways to explore uh, happiness in Japan. There's, you know, the ancient Shinto, you know, Zen ideas of happiness, contentment, connection with nature up to like the modern world of Japan where people are marrying AI robots, you know, and uh, so there's such a beautiful wide range there. So we lost two, actually. We lost Dubai and Japan. Hopefully we'll get a season two and be able to go visit those places. So LA was like a last minute addition, but I actually was really uh, grateful for it. I think it is a terrific episode and I think it it brings it around full circle and you know, how can I apply what I learned on the road? Because again, part of the show is my, as a substitute, Eric Weiner, uh, my personal journey for happiness as well, which I talk about. How can I apply what I learned, like Henry Miller said, my shift in perspective and bring it back to my home? And um, I thought it was a really touching and interesting uh, episode. Yeah, I, I did too. And it's interesting that, you know, you went back to LA. I was living in Miami, actually, when I, at least when I started writing this book. And they're both places that people associate with paradise LA and Miami, you know, palm yeah. trees, beaches. Well, people are leaving LA for Miami, the migration pattern shift. Yeah. But I think, I think palm trees uh, get in the way of uh, happiness because it, it, a place like LA or Miami that people associate with beauty and relaxation and drinks with little umbrellas in them, you know, that creates this expectation of happiness like this is paradise this is what the travel industry sells us you know you want it it's you know february in michigan and you want to be happy you go to la miami or cancun and um i think that ha expectations really get in the way of happiness that if you take a trip or you about to do something and you think oh this is going to be great or if you think this is going to be terrible either way it'll interfere with your happiness as opposed to the more buddhist approach which is to go into uh a trip or an activity with no expectations. And we'll be back with more of Rain and Eric after this. We're back with the gist. Here's a segment from the Geography of Bliss, episode two, Rain Wilson travels to Bulgaria. <laughs> So far, the only person I've met in this country found happiness by getting away from everyone else. I sympathize. My inclination is almost always to be left the hell alone. My time in Gros Devizzi makes clear what so many Bulgarians left behind. Let's hug it out, Bulgarian. But if I want real insight into Bulgarian sadness, into my own sadness, I'll next need a translator who's fluent in the language of misery. 
So much of the unhappiness is not objectively or empirically, it's comparing yourself, and you raised this in the Bulgaria episode with, what was it, the Easterlin effect, comparing yourself to pure nations, or comparing yourself to your the other people who live in your cul-de-sac, or just the uh, idea of um, the hedonic adaptation, right? Where you no longer say, oh, look how good I'm doing. You just adapt to it and compare yourself to your base rate. But there's nothing, but again, I don't, it's all interesting to get insights from. I don't know how much we can do about it. I don't know how much, even if it was true that expectations or comparisons uh, thwart happiness or looking at other countries, do we just say, therefore, I will not think in that way? Seems almost impossible. Why the negativity, Mike? <laughs> Why do you say that? I don't think, no, it's not negative. I don't, right? I, I'm not pressuring myself to become more happy. I find it interesting that this is how happiness occurs. But I don't think that there is a 12-step program. Yes, I believe people can change a little bit. But I don't think there's this one great insight that if you change your life around it, it's going to make you happy. And I think that there's, uh, I mean, Rain, you're Baha'i, right? I am. You're a member of the Baha'i faith, and I've heard you talk about this a lot, and you find deep meaning from it. And so maybe it's the most important intellectual and spiritual component of your existence. Did that, did, did, did that insight lead to happiness? Well, you know, this is a, uh, this is a very complicated uh, conversation. I will say that I disagree with you before I get to the Baha'i question, I disagree with you that there is not anything you can ultimately do because I do think that one of the most ancient spiritual philosophies in the world uh, in Buddhism addresses this directly, that life is happy, life is unhappiness, life is suffering, right? And the, the word that the Buddha used was dukkha from the Pali, which is kind of chronic anxious dissatisfaction. Life is kind of chronic anxious dissatisfaction. This dissatisfaction is what hum has kept humans alive, right? Because we don't have enough. We want more. Things aren't going to work out. I better prepare for winter better. I better store more deer fur in my cave, you know? And um, and then the, the, the solution that the Buddha offers is by saying that uh, attachment to things, to outcomes, is that cause of suffering. And if you can release that attachment, then you can actually let go of a good deal of the of the suffering. It's like um, bad things are going to happen, but suffering is optional. And I do think that there that living your life in in those terms can actually greatly increase the quality of your life. And it's something that I've had to learn how to do. Uh, as an actor, someone in show business, where rejection, uh, disappointment, obstacles, struggle happen all the time. And you know, you audition, you're close between you and someone else, and you don't get it. So I have learned to be, you know, in a state of of detachment, of non-attachment to outcomes. Now I'm in a fortunate position because I have enough money. I don't have to like, oh shit, I got to pay the rent next week. If I don't get this guest spot on Chicago Fire, I'm going to be screwed. <laughs> but, but I also, but going to the Baha'i idea, and again, this is why in my sorry to plug my new book, Soul Boom, why we need a spiritual revolution. I talk about some of these uh, items in the book, but from a Baha'i perspective, do I feel more happiness? I feel more. Um, wholeness 
being a Baha'i and having a spiritual uh, mission for having greater sense of purpose, for a greater understanding of why I'm alive and what life can offer and what what paths I can take and what are what paths are the healthiest for the development of my soul. So yes, being a Baha'i has made me happier. I'm I, you know, I fail, I struggle, I I wake up grumpy, I can be a dick sometimes, but um it has overall helped me uh to find happiness. Oh, I don't doubt that. And all these statistics about spirituality show that that can exist in many different faiths and many different religions. My point was that I do think people can change a bit. I do think certain types of therapy work. I do think reading insightful texts that give you insights work. But I basically think fundamentally we have our character traits. We have character or trait phenomenon. And so much of the... Let's talk about happiness. Let's um, examine different religions. Let's find an insight into changing uh, how we interact with the world is very, very hard because it mistakes the state phenomenon, which is the emotional reaction to an experience, to the trait phenomenon, which is just your disposition. It mostly can't work. I love the documentary. I love the book. I love thinking about it. But I think it mostly, and for most people, uh, it, it's really impossible to greatly increase your happiness, even if we use all the tools available to us. Okay. Can I jump in? Yes. First of all, stick to the day job. Do not go into therapy. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> my, I think it could help and, a little. Uh, so for a long time, uh, you know, the belief among psychologists that you, you were, is basically what you're saying, that you're born genetically or dispositionally with a certain level of happiness. And one psychologist famously said that uh, trying to be happier is like trying to be taller. It's just not going to happen. And that psychologist who since passed away later recanted that and said, in fact, there's a range that we all have are born with a potential range of happiness. Now, I know because of my biochemistry or my parents, probably both, I am never going to be like super happy, like Oprah levels of happiness. Right, it's just right. not going to happen. Right. But I think I do have a range and I can either operate at the bottom of that range or toward the top of that range. So no, you cannot change 180 degrees, but you can improve in degrees. And I think you do that through changes in perspective. And the other point I want to make is you said, you know, it's just kind of the way things are. And I think one of the points of both the book and the show is that a lot of what we assume is, is just the way things are, is really just the way things they are, they are in in New York or LA or, or La Paz, Bolivia. Uh, like a lot of what we think of as sort of being universally true is really situationally and geographically true. And once you realize that, it sort of expands the world of possibilities. Um, maybe things are not just that way. It's just because I grew up as an American or a Bulgarian. Right. So I, I forgot what context I said the way things are in. But I actually think that if one were to maximize the chances of increasing happiness, I'd engage in all the sorts of pursuits, intellectual and spiritual that you're talking about. But probably the best thing I could do is move to a different place. I do think that uh, geopolitics greatly influences happiness, 
probably the reason that those Nordic countries are so happy is not that they have a key insight about their psychology, their psychiatry, or how to live life. They're very rich. They're among the richest nations. They have small populations. They have homogeneous populations, which I don't want to say that is part and parcel of happiness. It just seems to highly correlate. Um, I think we could try to do it with a heterogeneous population. It just hasn't happened as much. So if we were to do a scatter graph of the things that make you happy, it's those things. It's one's unchangeable traits. It's one's uh, country. And then much, much different is one's what one brings to it philosophically. Rain, go ahead. Mike, I'm just astonished at your, your coal-hard, black little heart. <laughs> Uh, that is such a skeptical idea of happiness and it's, and it is so, it's so victim-y. I'm surprised at you. Like, we'll never change. We'll never get out. If you're born into a nice family in Sweden, you're going to be happy. Otherwise, forget about it, kid. Now, listen, <laughs> if you, if you get up in the morning and you do a cold plunge, which helps slow release dopamine throughout the day, okay? If you do meditation, if you read, uh, you know, Buddhist or Eckhart Tolle scriptures or new age, something that inspires you. If you limit your screen time, if you exercise, if you eat right and don't eat fake carbohydrates, and if you connect with nature consciously at some point during every day, if you do a small act of service for someone else, if you do all of these things, I guarantee you the quality of your life is gonna be better. That, that's just a right. fact. With all of those things, embracing those things, first of all, the availability of those things is to some extent, uh, to a large extent, dictated by the country you live in, the opportunities you have, but embracing those things, openness to experience, um, daringness, all that stuff is greatly influenced by what I'm talking about, your internal traits. I exercise all the time because I'm the kind of guy who really wants to exercise and I don't have too much screen time. I'm one I of the guys, but I'm one of the guys who doesn't want to exercise all the time and I do it anyway because I know it's important for my mental health. I'm not wired to exercise every day. I'm, I, I'm wired to exercise once a month. <laughs> But right, the Wilsons store their energy and guard it. But the point is that, well, I don't want to say, and how happy are you? It's That's not the right question. The question is judged against the baseline. You've been very honest about this, the anxiety that you've had uh, all your life. You even called yourself, and Eric, you said we were flawed narrators uh, to this quest. I disagree. I think you're the perfect narrators because you aren't just, you know, blissfully operating in the world uh, unaware. And so what I'm saying is, yeah, you could probably raise your levels of happiness uh, judged against the baseline. But in terms of just the pure absolute scale of happiness, I don't know. I don't know that all this stuff is elevating you above um, a person from, I don't know, Ghana who never, who doesn't do any of this stuff is just generally more ha happy. Well, Rain went to Ghana and, and they may not be, you know, in therapy and exercising, but they're moving, right? And they're, they, and they have these social relations. So it, it's sort of like, like, if I said run three miles every day, it'll make you feel better. And you're like, no, I need to see the proof, the studies. You know, you don't need to read the studies that, that running three miles a day is going to make you feel better and be healthier. You just have to do it. And I think the people in Ghana and other places are just doing these things that we know make them happy. They just don't read as many, you know, self-help books and, and, and psychological studies about them. 
Well, and when when you boil it all down to, and I've I've shared this before, one of the things that I found in these travels is that um, it's all about connection. It's all about community, and that's where you really witnessed joy, meaning, you know, exaltation, transcendence was families dancing together, friends eating together, people in service to one another, the, those Viking women in Iceland, hand in hand, singing at the top of their lungs, walking into the 50 degree Arctic Ocean every morning. I think for me, at least, I think it's about stepping out of my comfort zone. And when we go in the sea, then it is difficult and it's always a challenge, even though Maka and I are very used to go in the sea now and we go three times a week, it's always a bit of a challenge. But uh, then you think, I am doing this. I am mm. going to do it. Mm. And um, there's nothing changing that. I'm, I'm here, I'm doing it. Then you can transfer that onto so many other things in life that are difficult or challenging. This kind of these relationships really do increase happiness. And at a place like Ghana, like Eric says, they just come much more naturally to people. Like they can't, Ghanaians don't, can't imagine their life, you know, in front of a computer screen and isolated, like, you know, a quarter of young people in America are currently living their lives. And guess what? We're having the worst mental health crisis that we've had uh, in world history. Yeah. Do you think that the mental health crisis, the metrics that we have about it, things like, uh, ideas about suicide and depression, are those the best measures of the health of a society? Because as you said, Iceland, uh, episode number one, very happy people, greatest amounts of depression and antidepressants. I think they're not mutually exclusive. Um, Switzerland, also one of the happiest countries in the world, also high suicide rate. Um, in, in other words, you know, one Swiss person said to me, well, if you're not happy in Switzerland, you think, what, what's the point? Oh, <laughs> you're comparing yourself to those happy people. But I, I think you're right. You are looking at, you're looking at a, a country pathologically when you talk about depression and suicide. You're not looking at what makes people happy. You're looking at the pathology. It's like a doctor that's only treating disease in a person and not all the wellness factors in them. So it, it is kind of a negative way of looking at things. And, you know, I think maybe you're better off having a country that has a lot of joy and contentment, but, you know, also people on antidepressants, also, unfortunately, people committing suicide. But overall, they're producing something more than a country that's just humming along at, at a very low base level, if that makes sense. Yeah. And it was interesting when you said um, you don't need to read a study about going jogging. You just need to go jogging. Actually, I do read studies and I interviewed Robert Waldinger, who uh, is the director of the of the Harvard Medical School longest study of happiness ever conducted. And he told me and his findings said, small interactions is what Rain, you were talking about community, even talking to the barista or talking to strangers, just getting into conversations, even these micro interactions really do correlate to happiness. So I began doing it and I began feeling a bit happier or at least right after those interactions, they were 80% positive. So you just shot down your thesis of five minutes ago. <laughs> no, no. I think that I am the kind of person who has the baseline character traits to be somewhere in however you want to measure it, somewhere in the happy to very happy range. I also have anandamide, which means I don't uh, really experience anxiety. That's a whole nother thing. I do experience sadness. I do experience worry when it's rational. But Are you a sociopath? I'm not a sociopath. <laughs> 
I could read. Are there bodies in your closet and of your radio station? (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not. I do think that we have had many, many self-help ideas come down the pike and in 12 years, they're all discarded for the next one. And there has lately been a trend, the number one uh, class at Yale is a happiness class, and my friend Gretchen Rubin has a happiness podcast, and Dan Abrams has a happiness podcast, and you guys went searching the world for happiness. And there's stuff that can be found there. But I do think the big stuff is caricature, caricature traits, not being able to do an activity or think about think about things differently to will your yourself into happiness. I saw one of the uh, videos that Soul Pancake did about gratitude, either journaling or expressing gratitude. And then I read the studies on it. And I just don't believe that expressions of gratitude, they're nice. I mean, they're a little nice. You don't believe you don't believe the hard data that has been compiled about the effectiveness of gratitude. Because it is staggering. And if you talk to Dr. Lori Santos, who teaches that class at Yale, she will she will absolutely be able to, you should get her on the show. She will absolutely, absolutely be able to back uh, those studies up. And, and again, like you keep saying this thesis and I am telling you, Mike, that if I choose to, to live my life in a certain way, I can actively affect my happiness quotient just in the same way that you said you decided you made a choice to be more interactive with people and that it actually worked and increased your happiness. And then when questioned about it, you were like, yeah, but I'm kind of programmed to be that way anyway. This is turning into a brawl over happiness, which I find <laughs> well, interesting. I have, I, have read, I have read the data. There's a lot of conflicting empirical data, and I can't cite it to you. But, you know, things like, oh, uh, studies that showed that uh, that compared a gratitude condition with ne- neutral emotional condition and present levels of gratitude did not evidence a relationship with well-being. They, they've done many, many studies that show that there might be a gratitude uh, effect and many other studies that show that they couldn't find a gratitude effect. And even those that f- show a gratitude effect uh, don't show that it's enormous. I, I go back to William James, who said, truth is what works. And I would say to you, you tr- I love that. try, yeah, try yeah. these things. Like, you know, go running for three miles a day, see if it makes you feel better. Try gratitude journalizing, journaling, see if it makes you happier, experience happiness. Um, so I do think you, you can't just read the studies and parse the data. You have to try these things, and the proof is in the pudding in what you do. If it all worked, given the explosion of happiness research, why aren't we becoming happier? That's a good question. Well, I think, I think that has to do uh, with the main explosion with the mental health epidemic, with uh, the loneliness epidemic, and that the Surgeon General is talking about. Um, the increase in anxiety and depression among young people can be uh, correlated if you look, at the, again, at the hard data from Dr. Jonathan Haidt and the work that he's doing um, really around social media and screens. And um, that is the kind of neutron bomb that went off about 15 years ago that is you know, 100% correlated with this mental health crisis, especially among teenage girls. So I think that's the, you know, you, you have a lot of happiness data coming out and that can influence the dial a little bit, you know, two or three percent, and then you have this neutron bomb of of 
of social media and phones and people staring at, checking their phones every 90 seconds and, you know, uh, spending, you know, three, four hours a day looking at a screen. And that has some very serious, deleterious effects. Yeah. And and actually, you asked the question, like, like, why aren't we happier? And my friend Dan Gilbert, who's a, a professor of psychology and happiness guru of sorts at Harvard, he he doesn't know either because he says to people like, we have all this data, we have all these studies, we know what you can do to make yourself happier. We know that staring at your phone and comparing yourself to beautiful people in LA is not going to make you happier, but we do it anyway. So we're we're kind of fucked up, if I can say that, because we we often act in ways contrary to what we know will make us happier. And I think a lot of experts throw up their arms. You know, why Why do we have the third cheeseburger when we know it's not going to make us feel as happy as the first cheeseburger? Um, why do we pursue wealth beyond a certain point when we know it doesn't really add to your happiness? So I, I don't know. It is kind of a mystery. Rain Wilson is the host of the new Peacock show, The Geography of Bliss. Eric Weiner is the author of the book of the same name. I do not know if this or if agreeing to this interview made either of you happy, but in this weird way, it did that for me. So thank you so much. No, listen, I appreciate healthy conflict and uh, authentic conversation. And I believe that that can increase happiness. And I feel joy, Mike, that you have a show that allows the guests to kind of like get into it. And um, I think that's an awesome service. I'm thrilled to be a part of it. I love it. And I've only it's an important conversation. It really is. Sorry, Eric. No, I've only experienced a slight uptick in happiness. Um, No joy. (laughs) Maybe that's because I know you too well. I don't know. (laughs) He he expected. Yeah. (laughs) He didn't warn you beforehand in another memo that was possibly read. (laughs) Gentlemen, thank you so much. I too appreciated it. This is what I do or try to do, and this was great. So thank you. Great. Thank you, Mike. Thanks, Mike. And we should note, since suicide did come up in this interview, I wanted to mention 988. That is the suicide hotline. Just three numbers, 988. It works from any phone. It works from your mobile. If you or someone you know is feeling the need to call such a hotline, it is a useful service. And that's it for today's show. Corey Warr is the producer of The Gist and Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is senior bliss editor for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast for advertising inquiries. Go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oopru, jeepru, dupru, and thanks for listening. Care for a piece of chocolate? Chocolate? Where did you acquire it? That is a delicacy in the Amazon, but it has not yet been imported to the United States. Who is the king of Austria? Joseph II. Who is the king of Prussia? Friedrich Wilhelm III. Who is the king of England? Why, the tyrant King George, of course. I don't care what Jim says. That is not the real Ben Franklin. I am 99% sure.